This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Welcome to Sourcing Journal Radio, our weekly check-in with apparel insiders and thought leaders, which spotlights a variety of topics currently driving change in the market. This podcast series is made possible by Cotton Incorporated, a not-for-profit company funded by U.S. cotton producers and importers whose mission is to increase the demand and profitability of cotton. Discover what cotton can do. I'm Edward Hertzman, president and founder of Rivet and Sourcing Journal. On today's episode, we will be speaking with Andrew Ola, the founder of the New York-based textile consultancy group Ola Inc. and the denim trade show Kingpins. Since debuting Kingpins in 2004 as a small gallery-like show, Andrew has played host to the global denim supply chain at Kingpins events in New York, Amsterdam, and across China. Through the success of Kingpins, Andrew has launched Kingpins Transformers, a catalyst for industry-wide innovation and sustainability, and introduced the Dutch denim event, Denim Days, to major U.S. cities. And he does this all while being at the helm of his own textile business and teaching the next generation of denim experts at the Fashion Institute of Technology. It's for these reasons that Andrew was named one of Rivet's 50 most influential people in denim in 2018. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks, Eddie. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Andrew, you're identified um, publicly uh, with Kingpins, but you got your start in denim through your own textile business. Can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, you know, and what Ola Inc. is? Well, yeah, I mean, that company actually this year, our company is going to celebrate our 60th anniversary. Um, my father started the company in 1959, and I ended up running the company after his death from 1976 onwards. In Canada, we were a textile sales agency, and by the end of of the 1970s, I flipped the agency company to focus on the jeanswear industry and started to work for Legler, um, which is a company in Italy who were the first, allegedly the first denim mill ever made outside the United States. So our textile company has been around for a long time. Um, We've been focusing on denim since 79. We worked for Legler for 25 years. We worked for Kurabo, which is one of the most famous denim Japanese denim producers. We worked for them for 27 years. And about four or five years ago, we started to work for Prosperity in China. Um, so that's been our business and what we've done. 
So at first glance, Andrew, it seems kind of counterintuitive to promote competing mills, but it worked for you with Kingpins. Can you take us back to your mindset when you decided to launch the trade show? Yeah, totally. The original idea was because Caravo, the Japanese company that we worked for, had four divisions. They had a denim mill in China. They had a denim mill in Japan. They had a denim or a peace dyed mill in Japan, and they had a peace dyed mill in Thailand. And we wanted the market to understand that they were four different companies. So we thought, well, let's rent an art gallery in Soho. Let's make four booths. Let's have a really big party so that everybody understands that these four companies are releasing their new collections. And then we got fearful of the fact that we might be too boring. So we started to invite other companies to exhibit um, so that it would just be more interesting. And those coincidentally turned out to be supply chain partners. And we invited companies like Martelli from Italy, um, Cadica from Italy, and Cobra from Italy, and a bunch of other companies. I think there were 11 of us all together. And we unknowingly created a supply chain show. Were you ever afraid that you may start cannibalizing your own business by bringing, you know, competitors into the same room? Never. Honestly, that was a really big discussion that we had with Carabo because they were a bit freaked out about it. But what we thought was that the more customers came, the better it was for all of us. So the basic idea was if we did an event by ourselves, probably 20 or 30 customers would come or 40. If we did an event with two or three other companies that were our competitors, maybe 70 customers would come. And then at the end, when we got to where we are, now we have New York, 230 or 240 brands appear in two days. In Amsterdam, we have 770 brands. So I think the idea of being stronger as a group and stronger as a community was the lesson that we learned from doing a trade show. So so what did you say? Your first show was, what, 11, 11 exhibitors? Yeah, I think 11 or 12 or something like that. And what are, you, what are you up to today? Oh, I guess every show is different, but I, I think the big one, Amsterdam, is probably like 195 or something like that. So I obviously attend that show every year as well as uh, Angela, our managing editor of, of Rivet. But my question is today, you got 100 vendors. You have this complete sea of blue out there. Andrew, how does a mill differentiate themselves? You know, you have hundreds of, of brands attending this show. How does one mill stand out from the other? Well, that's like asking somebody who goes to a nightclub, how does one man stand out from the other? <laughs> I have nice hair. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So one, one tactic would be not to wear shoes or, or to not, I don't know, not wear a jacket or something. I don't know. When it comes to denim mills, I think there's like six, five, six. Let me think. There's different features that make you and differentiate you. One is your product. So do you have beautiful product? Do you show beautiful product? Is, the, is it easy for people to see that you have beautiful product? And the next thing is your reputation. Do you have integrity? Or do you have a good reputation? Have, what have you done with your reputation? The third is your marketing. Does anyone even know who you are before they arrive to the show? Four, what information are you going to provide people that they can learn from? Do you have anything that you give away for free that makes people better off by visiting you than not? Are you competent? And are you consistent? So, I mean, there's, there's all these features, some historical, some that you see in the show, but you need to stand out by, by being excellent. So let's pivot the conversation a little bit to sustainability, something that I know you're, you're very passionate about. You know, you're very vocal about sustainability. And many of Kingpin's vendors make 
uh, you know, very sustainable claims. You recently announced plans to require your exhibitors to meet or exceed corporate social responsibility standards. How are you going to do this? And what is this criteria that you're, you're, you're kind of benchmarking them against? Well, um, the concept is pretty simple. When, when you, when any, any of the brands or retailers start with the new garment factory, the very first question they ask is, do they have any social compliance standards? Who's auditing them? And so on. It's a very, very important question for brands when they talk to um, a new garment factory. When they talk to a uh, denim mill, they don't really ask that question. They just ask what products they got and what prices they have. And I think that's kind of weird um, because it's all part of the same supply chain. And um, denim mills use a lot of workers. So it doesn't mean that my denim mills or the denim mills that are in our shelves have never been audited. I'm sure some of them have. I'm sure some of them haven't. Um, but what we're asking, what we think is a reasonable ask, is that there are many social compliance standards out there and certifications out there. And what we're asking is that they simply pick one and meet it. We're really not asking for anything special. We're asking people to simply get a certification and have it. That's all we're asking. Do you do you think that the majority of the mills out there that are making sustainable claims are, are true? You know, are they are, are they living up to, to, to their to their pitches or is it mostly greenwashing? I have no idea to say one way or the other, and that's the unfortunate part of the way our industry works today is nobody knows. So, you know, that's that kind of segues into Another initiative of yours, which is Transformers, um, you know, you you help shine a spotlight on important social and environmental challenges that are that are facing the the denim industry. And now you're a few years in on Transformers. What is your goal with this with this conference, and and what do you believe is its role within the industry? Well, okay, we're going to. We have decided to um, Transformers is not free. So it's an expensive um, event that we've been conducting and basically supporting through Kingpins, but it's a not a sustainable, a financially sustainable process. So the first thing is we have to figure out what to do with it in the future from a financial point of view and how we can keep an educational process going forward. And the decision that we've made is that starting in 2020, we're going to turn it into a foundation. So we will be a foundation, and then what that foundation will, we'll have to find funding for that foundation and support what that foundation's obligation is going to be, which will be, there will be metrics for it. Um, the foundation is going to work really diligently to bring um, change to our industry. This is our mission, is that we bring change. And this is, this is our, our efforts on CSR and social compliance is because we got tired of talking and talking and talking. We really actually, we want to move this along to actually where we can sit down and say, well, we did this. Um, so that is going to be the basic um, point of the of the foundation is that we're going to the first first function will be that we educate. The second function is, is that we will actually create goals where we act, can actually say a year or two later what we've accomplished, and that's a key part of it. And thirdly, we're going to create information. So we're going to put information in um, that's basically all over the internet or all over different places and house it in one place. So that people who are interested in sustainability can get information in one place that's accurate, that is agreed upon by many different NGOs or companies. And lastly, we're going to create reports on an annual basis of who's doing what and how it's going. So, 
you know, who's doing what and how they're doing, you know, in this world of sustainability, who really inspires you? You know, what brands, what companies are there individuals that are really making positive change? Well, I think the original, the original companies that started me in this world were Patagonia. I mean, it was the original one. And then Eileen Fisher recently has done a really great job in this country that inspired me. Um, I'm in our industry. I've been always impressed by nudie because they have a core belief in doing the right thing. And G-Star has been really activated and doing lots of really wonderful things. And then, you, you know, on the manufacturing side that I'm um, totally, totally inspired by Cytex and proud of their accomplishment because I've helped them and it makes me really happy. So there are lots of companies out there that are doing good things. And I think there can be lots more. And um, the list is kind of long. I mean, there's a lot of people that are doing good things. So another thing that you're involved in is, is Denim Days. And you brought this festival over um, from from Europe to the U.S. Uh, you, you've had, I guess your entire career, I guess you could say, has really been in, in B2B. So what has kind of given you this itch to enter into the B2C space? Well, there's a lot of different reasons for that. I'm, I mean, I'm a consumer. I love jeans. And all my friends in the business love jeans. And if you, if in our dreams, in my dreams, if I wanted to shop and, and get denim and denim centric stuff, and I wanted to really have a, like a free for all shopping event, I'd want, I'd have to go to Japan. I'd have to go to Europe. I have to go to LA and New York. There's a lot of different cities. You have to go to see all the cool stuff that comes out every season, but it's, it's unrealistic and it's not going to happen for me or for others. So the idea of denim days is that we create an event that happens once a year where all the best stuff that's around in, in blue or in indigo um, whether it's for home or whether it's knickknacks or whether it's jeans or whatever it is, it doesn't have to be only jeans, but it's an indigo kind of shopping experience exists for a couple of days a year. And I just don't think that the distance between making jeans that are awesome or curiosities that are amazing is really different. If you do a B2B or you do a B2C, we just wanted to make it available to consumers. And the other side of this is that there are lots of geeks in our industry and lots of lots of people who want to who are on the edge of B2B anyway. Um, it's the same thing in the, the tech business. It's the same thing in lots of industries. There are lots of consumers that are virtually on the edge of the B2B area anyway. And so we're just giving them an opportunity to to get engaged with uh, with the industry. So if you were, you know, consulting for you know, mills or trim suppliers or, or other factories. And, you know, the, the question today is, you know, who are the brands to look at, right? You know, everyone's looking um, for who to sell, you know, who, who are the companies that you really want to invest in um, and, and market, you know, market your product to. And it's changing, right? You know, it's it, for a long time, it was, it was the traditional brick and mortar retailers that were buying the, 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 the yardages from, from the factories or buying the, you know, the buttons from YKK or zippers from YKK or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But today there's so many brands that have popped up in the past several years that have, have grown tremendously in a short period of time that there's a lot of opportunity for the supply chain right now. You know, what are some brands that are on your radar that you think um, are worth, worth keep, you know, taking note of? Well, I guess I would answer that in a slightly different way. I'm impressed and I'm kind of inspired by Everlane because they're sort of going a direction that I really believe on, believe in. But for me, 
the future of the industry is in transparency, and there's nobody really doing it perfectly. And I feel like the, um, the millennial generation really genuinely wants to know where their stuff is made. And I say this all the time. Nobody knows where anything around them is from or how it's made or who, who you know, none of us even know if any garment we're wearing has toxic chemistry in it. I mean, this is kind of all zany and the zaniness is going to end. And there are tools being created every single day to end this. And we're reaching a point where brands that will be successful will be brands that are able to be transparent, entirely transparent from their fiber supply all the way through to their bags. And even they're going to be able to or have to say what they do with their product when they're finished with it, if it doesn't sell. So I think we're going into that zone. And I think transparency includes price transparency, cost transparency. I think that's where we're going. And I'm impressed by anyone who goes down that road. And there's not many people going down that road so far. So um, I want to end with one question. I hope I don't embarrass you, but um, I know you recently turned sixty-five. Happy birthday! And yeah, why would um, that why would that embarrass me? Eddie? I don't really understand why that would be embarrassing. <laughs> well, because you look like you're uh, fifty-five. <laughs> Whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, well, so you know, you just turned sixty-five, and it's clear from just this brief conversation, you're really showing no signs of slowing down, which is which is really remarkable. What should the denim world expect? from Andrew Ola in the years to come? Our Kingpin show in in China is really, really growing. And we've set in our minds the kind of image that we believe we can turn our China show into as successful a show as our Amsterdam show. So I would say that would be something that first comes to mind. I really, there's so much work to do in China. There's so much education that needs to be provided, but there is a gigantic market and the, the opportunity there is enormous for doing the things that we're doing in Amsterdam successfully and bringing it there. So that's, that's, I guess, the first thing that we would like to do. The second thing is my foundation. I'm really super excited about my foundation next year and having, you know, be part of something which is an independent entity that actually can go and change the industry and, and, not, and not have any blockages. So I think that is absolutely an incredible opportunity for us to do and that can make change. And um, I guess the third thing is, is just to keep our company going. We, we're 60 years old this year. And the idea of our company has always been that it's it's for the employees to have a good life. And I'd really like to have our company continue and keep going and growing so that the people work, who work here have great lives and are really happy in the industry and, and bring other young people into the industry who enjoy it as well. I think those are the things that really interest me. It's clear, Andrew, why you are an inspiration to many in the denim industry and have, have been a, a, a leader and on, on a pioneer in many of the initiatives that you have taken on. Um, I want to thank you for, for your time today. I, I want to thank you for your you know continued support of Rivet and uh, just uh, you know not only being a good friend of, of the industry, a good friend of uh, the publication, but on a personal level, being a good good you know friend and mentor to, to myself. So thank you for your time, and uh, hopefully we can have you again uh, on the show soon. Thank you for, for talking to me, Eddie, and I'm available to you anytime that you want. Thank you. <laughs>